welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Our scripture reading today comes from John chapter 20, and I'm going to be reading verses 24 through 29. I believe there's a link in your app. If you want to click on that, you can follow along. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In 1975, a Jesuit philosopher named John Cavanaugh went to Calcutta, India for three months to work in Mother Teresa's home for the dying, the place where she cared for the destitute and the poor and the dying of her city and of that impoverished city. And Cavanaugh at the time was in the midst of a spiritually dry and difficult season in his life, and he was searching for answers, and the reason he went to see Mother Teresa and to work at her home for the dying was to find those answers. And on his first morning there, Mother Teresa said to him, and what can I do for you? And he asked her to pray for him. What do you want me to pray for? She responded. And Kavanaugh said, pray that I have clarity. And Mother Teresa firmly responded to his request and said, no, I will not do that which by itself is rather incredible. Try it next time. Uh, Would you pray this or that happens in my life? No, I'm not going to do that because that wouldn't be good for you. When Kavanaugh asked her why, she said this, quote, clarity is the last thing you are clinging to and must let go of. And Kavanaugh responded, well, you seem to have clarity. And Mother Teresa laughed and then said, I have never had clarity. What I have always had is trust. So I will pray that you trust God. And I hope even in this strange, bizarre, weird setting for a Sunday gathering, you hear the wisdom of her statement, clarity is the last thing you are clinging to and must let go of. It speaks to the common human hunger to figure everything out, to make sense of every mystery, find an answer for every question, a cause for every effect, a resolution For every mess, Mother Teresa's wisdom, in other words, collides head-on with our insatiable desire for control. And today, we are resuming our Eastertide series where we are considering the post-resurrection encounters Jesus had with various people to help them and us live in the new reality of his resurrection presence and power. And today, we are talking about faith and doubt. We're talking about moving from faith, moving from uh, doubt to faith, the interplay between these two 
dynamics and the way faith and doubt mix together in the life of an authentic Christ follower. Faith is not the enemy of doubt, nor is doubt the enemy of faith. Rather, both are mixed together in an authentic Christian's life. And the patron saint of faith and doubt is one of the original 12 disciples. His name was Thomas, and we frequently call him Doubting Thomas. And when we say Doubting Thomas, it isn't intended to be a compliment. Still to this day, when we refer to someone, don't be a Doubting Thomas, as the saying goes, it implies a kind of failure. It implies a kind of not believing enough. Don't be a Downing Thomas, as the saying goes. I mean, here's a guy who, shame on him, Thomas, he had difficulty, for some reason, believing his crucified friend had now returned from the dead. I mean, what a shallow and faithless guy this Thomas was. But, you know, the thing about Thomas is he wasn't alone in his doubt. And a careful reading of the post-resurrection mood amongst the disciples shows nearly all of them at some point struggled to believe this fantastic and incredible news that their Lord, their friend, Jesus, had actually come back from the grave. And we struggle to believe at times as well, it seems to me. It just seems from personal experience from the example of other people, both historically and in the present, from the example of people we interact with in our own church, and from many biblical examples, it seems to me the authentic Christian experience is not faith or doubt. It is faith and doubt. It is faith with doubt. So doubt is part of the journey of authentically following Jesus. Let's talk about the certainty of doubt. According to researcher George Barna, 65% of those who identify themselves as Christians or have identified themselves as Christians at some point in the past, 65% occasionally question what they believe about religion or about God. In other words, they doubt. And 19% of what Barna calls Devoted Christians experience doubt occasionally. Younger people, as uh, may not be surprising, are particularly prone to doubt because of the culture they have grown up in. So 38% of millennials currently experience twice as much doubt as any of the other generational groups. And just as a sidebar, this is a significant number as we think about the future of the church, the future of a local church like Oak Hills, the future of the church in general. What does that mean when almost 40% of millennials struggle with doubt about whether or not all of this is true. Men are more likely to doubt than women, and those who've been to college are twice as likely to experience doubt as those who haven't. Barna also goes on to suggest, for over half of those who actually experience doubt, it ultimately strengthens their faith. And so according to Barna, Doubt is inevitable even amongst the most faithful. But we probably don't need survey statistics to convince us of this. I think most of us, if we just allow ourselves to be real about it, can relate to Thomas. We've been through hard things, perhaps, in our lives. And during those hard things, those stressful times, those difficult times, perhaps God has seemed 
very far away. And his promise to be present in times of trouble has perhaps not translated to a lived experience of his presence during those times of trouble. So we read about it in the Bible or we listen to someone tell us that God is near us or God is with us, but we ourselves have not actually experienced that in times of difficulty. Maybe our prayers have been met with silence or just seem to bounce off the ceiling. Tough times in life then can cultivate doubt. I've been there and I imagine many of us have been there and I know some of us are there right now. Some of us in another sense, are wired in a certain way that we have a hard time just accepting or believing things. We are inclined, in other words, to question and to investigate. And when fantastic claims are made, we immediately go to www.snopes.com. And if you have no idea what that is, then you probably don't have a mind that is suspicious or questions things. But some of us do. Some of us are inclined to question. Some of us are contrarian by nature, so we like to go against the grain for its own sake. And I'm not suggesting that our motivations are always healthy, and I'm not suggesting doubt is always good, but doubt frequently happens. And for some, doubt is easier than belief. And maybe this was part of Thomas's story. He'd been with Jesus for three years like the other disciples, but he couldn't just believe Jesus was back from the dead because the other disciples said he was. And Thomas articulated the desire of doubters when he said these words, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Pretty remarkable statement. He's saying, I need to experience this myself. I have to see it with these eyes. I have to feel it with these hands. And that brings us back to our wonderful marigold metaphor we've been using throughout this series that we have been in. Many of you have been in the process of growing your marigold, as have I. I know many of you have marigolds growing in your planter pot, and I believe that marigolds can grow in a planter pot. I see one right here in front of me. I know some of you have experienced marigolds growing in your planter pot because you've sent me pictures and you've gloated about it. But I have to say, on this day, I have nothing but dirt in my planter pot. I have no marigolds. The sprout that was emerging a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned to you, has since toppled over and disappeared into the dirt. So I believe marigolds grow in pots, and I've heard you talk about marigolds growing in your pots, but I don't have any marigolds growing in my pot. In fact, yesterday, Julie used my marigold pot to display congratulation signs for our daughter's college graduation party. And I said, hey, that's my marigold thing. And she said without hesitating, yeah, nothing's growing in there. So I thought I'd use it for something else. So I guess that's the end of the metaphor. We have to come up with something else in the weeks that follow. But I have to say, when it comes to this whole marigold thing, I could say it this way, my faith in marigolds growing is shrinking and my doubt is rising. And I would suggest, regardless of how long we've been a Christ follower, we want these fresh encounters with him. Hearing about him, reading about him, cannot substitute for actually experiencing him ourselves. So we may not like the sound of this, 
and this may grind against our preference for a neat and clean and nicely arranged religious experience, but doubt is common for Christians. Doubt is normative for Christian people. Doubt happens. The cry of Psalm 88 verses 13 through 14 rings true for most of us at various times in our lives. The psalmist cries out, I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? And most of us can relate to that. Those times in life where it seems like God has rejected us, turned away from us, or is hiding from us. So we may have at times doubts about the existence of God. We may have doubts at times about the goodness of God. We may have doubts about the presence of God in the midst of difficult life experiences. And I think many well-intended followers of Jesus actually doubt the possibility of real character transformation and change. Doubt is a certainty in our faith experience. Let's talk about the benefit of doubt. Peter Enns is a theologian and a scholar, and he describes the benefit of doubt in the life of a Christian in this way. And this is in the app if you want to follow along, and it is certainly worth following along. He writes, there is a benefit of doubt. Let me put that more strongly. There are things doubt can do spiritually that nothing else can do. Doubt is not the enemy, but a gift of God to move us from trusting ourselves to trusting him. Doubt feels like God is far away or absent, but it is actually a time of disguised closeness to God that moves us to spiritual maturity. Doubt is not a sign of weakness, but a sign of growth. Pretty powerful statement. Now, I certainly don't want to suggest that doubt is always a means of spiritual growth and maturity. It certainly can be, but it can also be a gateway to cynicism and to hopelessness. But as we think about this idea of Jesus' resurrection life growing in us and transforming us, it is important to realize the profound benefit of doubt in this transformation process. Doubt is not the enemy of faith, but can in fact be a sign of God's work within us, his work of moving us toward maturity. Paul defines Christian maturity in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. He defines it as, quote, the body of Christ built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And he goes on, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. So maturity is about attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, which in short means becoming like him individually and as a faith community. In Colossians 1.28, Paul says, Jesus is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. So maturity, according to Paul here, is inseparable from the person and the character of Jesus. In Colossians 4.12, 
Paul further defines maturity as standing firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. So maturity is one of the end games for a Christ follower. And maturity has to do with the character of Jesus Christ growing in us. But sometimes, and I would say often, Christians mistakenly think their certainty is a sign of their maturity. The confidence with which they believe in this or believe in that shows the depth of their faith, reveals their maturity, many think. The certainty with which we hold this or that interpretation of the Bible, the certainty about our understanding of God, the strength of our conviction about what the Bible says about this or that social problem, this certainty masquerades, I would suggest, as maturity. And I would suggest certainty, as we are talking about it here, is actually a sign of spiritual immaturity. Certainty functions for some Christians the same way clarity was functioning for John Kavanaugh. The quest for certainty and the demand for certainty is the very thing that needs to be surrendered to move toward maturity in Christ. See, for some of us, our confidence is in our certainty more than it is in God. Or put it this way, for some of us, we find peace in certainty. We find peace when we can attach labels. This is good. That is bad. This is right. That is wrong. This is what the Bible means. It doesn't mean this. And hopefully we can see how easy it is for certainty, or in Kavanaugh's case, clarity, to replace God and become the thing we trust. So we trust our system and the tenets of our system more than we trust God. And when doubt arises because of a life crisis or because for whatever reason God seems far away or because our prayers seem to go unanswered or because we're spiritually dry for whatever reason, when doubt arises, it could be, and I think often is, God's way of deconstructing our system and deconstructing our certainty and deconstructing the way we think life should work and the way we think God should be. And this painful process of deconstruction opens up the possibility of authentic growth toward maturity because it opens up space for God to reconstruct our views and our perspectives and our values according to reality as he defines it. And that reality may be as simple as he is God and we are not and his word is true and we don't fully comprehend it. See, it is because doubt and darkness and struggle open up space for real transformation that Mother Teresa did not pray for John Kavanaugh to find clarity. She knew his desire for clarity, his search for clarity, was the very thing keeping him from moving toward maturity in God. Kavanaugh was stuck in the familiar thought cycle, goes something like this. Everything will, will be okay 
when you fill in the blank. For Kavanaugh, everything will be okay when I find clarity. But Mother Teresa suggested everything is okay because God is real and God is reliable. And your quest for clarity is actually keeping you from him. You're trusting the enlightenment you think will come with clarity instead of trusting him. So the search for clarity is the idol that needs to be slain and surrendered. And here's the thing, and we may not know this, but Mother Teresa was speaking from her decades of personal experience with doubt and with darkness. I know that may land on you like, what, Mother Teresa? Yeah, Mother Teresa. On the way to loving and serving so many hurting people, Mother Teresa lost contact with God, and she agonized over his absence in her inner world. There's a book about this called Come Be My Light. It's worth reading. So when Mother Teresa said, what I have always had is trust, she meant this. I don't often feel God's presence, but I'm learning to trust he is present and he does care. And I am loved by him. When I think of the great stories from the Bible, I can think, I can hardly think of one that does not include a struggle with doubt. Abraham had this incredible faith and when years elapsed and he had no heir, he had no son to fulfill God's promise to give him a great nation, his faith began to waver. He doubted. He wondered where God was and he took matters into his own hands. And part of what God seems to have been doing in Abraham is reminding him that he, God, was the one who made the promise and he, God would fulfill his promise in his time and in his way and God's time and God's way rarely align with our time and with our way. So Abraham was learning to trust God through his periods of doubt and dryness. Think of the people of Israel. The people of Israel prayed for hundreds of years to be delivered from slavery in Egypt. What does that mean? It means babies were born and they grew up and then they had babies of their own and then they grew old and then they died and God did not answer their prayer for deliverance. Of course, they doubted where God was and wondered if he had given up on them. The Old Testament pulsates with the doubts of people who wondered where God was, if God was, and when or if he would ever come through. And over and over again, God urges his people to trust him. Thomas, as we read in our scripture reading, did not believe Jesus had risen from the dead. He could not believe it. And a week went by before Jesus showed up and helped him believe See, seasons of, seasons of struggle and doubt are opportunities for the Spirit of God to flush out the idols and the false gods and the misplaced confidence in us so that a space opens for deeper trust in God, in who He is, in what He will do in His time and in His way. And this is the path toward maturity, and this is the benefit of doubt. So lastly, let's talk about encountering Jesus with reasonable doubt. 
There are a couple things about Thomas's story I really appreciate. I love his honesty. He wasn't in the room the first time Jesus appeared to the disciples. And even though they told him, hey, look, we saw him, he's alive, Thomas didn't believe and he wasn't afraid to say he didn't believe. I love his honesty. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Notice he wants to see Jesus. He wants to feel the holes where the nails were driven. He wants to touch the wound where the spear entered Jesus' side. He wants what we all want. He wanted an actual encounter with the resurrected Jesus. See, Thomas is not asking for Bible verses that demonstrate the Messiah needed to die and then rise from the grave. Thomas is not asking for philosophical arguments about the logical possibility of Jesus' resurrection. He wants to see the risen Jesus. He wants to encounter him. And I love how Jesus comes to Thomas and has a personal encounter with him and helps him with his doubt. He shows up in the room, we are told in our scripture reading, and he approaches Thomas and he says, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. And then in classic Jesus form, he says to Thomas, now stop doubting and believe. We've got work to do and I need you in the game. It's a beautiful reminder of God's accommodating grace. He knows what we need. He knows where we get stuck. He knows the hurdles in our heads. And he wants us to believe. He's willing to meet us where we are and help us move along. There's a great story in Mark chapter 9. It's worth looking up if doubt is something that you deal with. A father comes to Jesus pleading with him to relieve his son's tormented soul. And Jesus says to this father, everything is possible for the one who believes. And the boy's father said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. There it is, right there. Faith, I do believe. And doubt, help my unbelief. That's the cry of the authentic Christian. I do believe. God, help my unbelief. Faith and doubt mixed together. Now, I don't know if Jesus will show up quite as dramatically with us in our doubts as he showed up for Thomas. He didn't apparently resolve all of Mother Teresa's doubts and darkness in her lifetime. And who knows if Thomas walked away from this encounter completely and forever relieved of all of his doubts. I highly doubt that. Maybe he didn't walk away forever convinced Jesus is my Lord and my God. But I love Jesus's final word to Thomas. Stop doubting and believe. You know how we hear that, many of us? We hear that as doubt is bad, stop doing it. Belief is good, start doing it. I just don't think, or if you will, I doubt. That's how Jesus said it, or that's what he meant. Maybe he said something similar to Mother Teresa, stop doubting and believe. Maybe he says something similar to us. I mean, it sounds so easy if you hear it one way. Like faith and doubt are two directions on a light switch, on, off. Faith, doubt. 
but maybe it's not quite so easy. Maybe it's not quite so neat. And maybe in Thomas's case, or in our case, or in Mother Teresa's case, Jesus doesn't scold about doubt, but he's saying something like this. Hey, stop leading with doubt. Stop giving all the power to your doubts. Stop letting doubt be the starting point because now you've seen enough. You've encountered enough. So here's an idea. Have confidence in me based on what you've encountered. Trust me based on what you've seen. However small or feeble your faith might be right now, lead with that faith. Start with that faith and let that faith give shape and context to your doubt. So maybe it's not really fair to call him doubting Thomas because it makes it all too clean and clarified. Maybe he was doubting Thomas who didn't believe and now he's believing Thomas who still occasionally doubts. Leslie Newbigin, a famous missionary and cultural observer wrote this, faith is the courage to confidently affirm beliefs which can be doubted. I really like that. Something liberating in that understanding of faith because it leaves room for doubt. So maybe we invite Jesus to meet us in our doubts and we learn to live with our doubts, perhaps to even be at peace with our doubts. Maybe we learn to trust him and surrender the need to resolve all of our doubts. Maybe we say, God, I can't resolve this. I'm going to trust you with this. Or maybe we just say, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. So where's your place of doubt? Where does it rise up in you? Where does it show itself? You know, let me tell you where mine come from. My own doubts rise up around two things. They, it rises up around whether or not it is actually possible for old wounds people carry around to be healed, to be restored, to be transformed. And I have to say that sometimes I grapple with doubts about whether or not reconciliation between people who are at odds with each other is actually possible. Does it really happen? Why doesn't it happen more often? Why aren't people who have experienced trauma and pain in their past, why doesn't Jesus heal that more often so they're set free in the present? Why aren't strained marriages and families and friends restored and reconciled more often? Why doesn't the communion table, when we gather together and eat the bread and drink the cup in this profound act of reconciliation God demonstrated for us to forgive and wash away our sin and bring us back into relationship with God. Why doesn't the power of that extend out and help people who are strained in their families and marriages and friendships find reconciliation? Why doesn't God intervene in these situations in more profound ways where he shows up and shows his scars to people and they realize he's real and they realize healing is possible? Why doesn't this happen more often? I have to say that I have doubts that rise sometimes around those things. But maybe those doubts I have are a gift of God's grace. Because maybe surrendering the need to have all those dilemmas resolved 
will deepen my trust in God. Maybe I have a vision of God that is being reshaped by God by not having those questions answered. Maybe he's trying to deepen my trust in him and move me toward a mature faith. And maybe the way forward is to bring all of these things to Jesus and be with him with these doubts and simply keep praying, God, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I recognize that in this moment, some people have very real doubts that perhaps have been with them for a long time. And in some ways, they eat at them. They uh, affect their heart, their inner world. And I pray for relief from that. Not relief from the doubts, but perhaps a more gentle embracing of the doubts. A recognition that your spirit works through all sorts of means, including our doubts, to bring forth new life, to bring forth authentic maturity, and to move us deeper into trusting you. So we pray that we will hear your voice and we will grow in the ways you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.